0: Welcome to No Nonsense Nonprofit, the podcast that gives you quick, actionable information, tools, and techniques to help you magnify your mission impact. Together, we'll cut through the noise, reconnect with our heart-centered work, and get stuff done. I'm your host, Sarai Johnson, Sailor Tongue change agent, Amazon bestselling author, purveyor of nonprofit wisdom, and founder of Lean Nonprofit. I founded Lean Nonprofit because I believe nonprofits are businesses too, so you ought to run yours like a boss. No Nonsense Nonprofit will help you do exactly that, plus you'll have fun doing it. So let's get started with this week's topic. Hello everybody, this is Sarai, your host. I'm so excited to be with you guys here today on No Nonsense Nonprofit. I'm looking forward to bringing you a wonderful selection of guests in the next couple of weeks. I have some people lined up to talk with you about fundraising, about being true to yourself, about communications, and about a lot of other topics that I think will be really useful for you. But today, I wanted to talk about workaholism in nonprofits. And since I don't have a guest yet and I'm just getting started, I thought I would go ahead and just shoot this one out there for you myself. Because I know firsthand what it's like to be addicted to do-gooding, which is what I like to call it, in a nonprofit setting. It's kind of interesting because we don't talk all that much about workaholism in a nonprofit sector kind of a context. We talk a lot about it in the context of uh, kind of for-profit businesses or uh, even government. We We see people in the political arena doing a lot of work, and we kind of acknowledge it as a culture. But it's not necessarily something that we talk about in this context. And so I really think that it's worth exploring and will be important to a lot of people. So a little over a year ago, I wrote a blog post, which you can still find on LinkedIn Pulse, which is where I post most of my blogs. It's called Addicted to Do-Gooding about workaholism and nonprofits. It was by far the most shared, liked, and viewed post I've ever put out there. And the reason is clear. Nonprofit work is gratifying, important, beautiful, and meaningful. And it's also demanding, sometimes grueling, emotionally challenging, and all too often it can be all-consuming. I wrote that topic because I had been afflicted with the horrible addiction to workahol in my own nonprofit life, like I just mentioned. It started out innocently enough. I was driven by a strange combination of gnawing insecurity and the need to prove myself and the fabulously irrational idea that I could do anything if I tried. So I took on every project I could. I was further encouraged by my addiction to achieving stuff, because it feels so good when you accomplish something, and the more you can accomplish, the better it feels, right? So I did as much as I could all the time. I um, also was trying at the time to escape my unhappy marriage, so I threw myself into my work more and more and more. I continued to take on more responsibilities without letting go of old ones, and I kept doing that until about five years into it, my last nonprofit, I faced a massive reckoning that demanded I change or else. And that was something that pulled together issues that I was experiencing with my health and with my mental health, as well as a situation with my boss and with others in my organization where everyone else was suffering because of my workaholism problem, as well as myself. Well, workaholism is like every other human behavior, and we do it because it's rewarding somehow, and it's driven by a purpose. So whether it's approval from your boss or simply feeling like you're valuable and worthy because of your good performance and hard work, we succumb to it because we get something out of it. It's a purposeful behavior, even though it might seem as though we're sliding into it, unaware that the toe we put into the overworking waters will ensnare us and suck us deep into its cold, cold depths. I'm being a little melodramatic, but here's the thing. We actually don't take workaholism seriously. As a culture, or as a world even, we still joke about workaholism just like we joke about being a chocoholic. We think it's cute or even admirable to work really, really hard to the point where you don't have much else going on in your life. We think people who work super hard are heroic, they're special, some of them achieve great things, some of them die with wonderful legacies, some of them are very important in all caps, and these are things I wanted for myself when I was addicted to working. Truth be told, though, workaholism is not funny or cute or precious or admirable. It is a real, actual addiction that can take you, and if you're not careful, your whole organization down with you. The worst part, workaholism doesn't only affect you. Sure, your family and friends struggle or suffer with it, and they resent taking a backseat to your ambitions and your job, but your organizational culture is also made up of people who might share your penchant for success and achievement, to the point where the majority of a lot of our offices are workaholic. Unlike other addictions, substance abuse comes to mind. We reward people who work hard. And these rewards are really powerful. A Stanford scientist, the author of *Happiness*, The Happiness Track, her name is Emma Sapala, I hope I'm saying that correctly, she notes that our brains thrive on the dopamine release that comes from doing a little more work. A little email here, a little project there, we get addicted to that in a very real sense. It's a neurotransmitter, that's actually how real addiction happens, and so workaholism is in fact a real addiction. Workaholism, she further explains, does nothing to improve results, but actually reduces productivity and leads to burnout. Burnout. Well, that sounds like a nonprofit thing, doesn't it? We can talk about that. How about we talk about workaholism first, because then burnout may not be such a problem down the road. See, we don't talk about, like I said, workaholism in the context of nonprofits all that often. It's a novel idea because when you hear about workaholics, they're characterized by the Wall Street power player stereotype or doctors or lawyers and others in powerful high paid positions, which most of us in nonprofits don't really kind of see ourselves that way. Those are the images that we get when we think of workaholics, but work addiction is not limited to those professions or even to the private sector. We have plenty of issues with workaholism in the nonprofit sector. For instance, I had a conversation with a nonprofit consultant friend of mine about the attrition we're seeing from young leaders in the sector about a year ago. We're both concerned that so many people in their twenties and thirties are opting out of nonprofit leadership, not pursuing executive director jobs, and often moving away from the entire sector. So when I said, my friend was offered an ED position but didn't want to work 80 hours a week, she interrupted and said, but that's the job. I disagree entirely. My point, rather, was that my friend as the ED could set a different tone for the organization. Maybe her example of temperance with her time and energy could set a new example for her organization and her employees might follow her lead. Here's the thing, workaholism at the top perpetuates it to all levels of the organization. When you lead your organization that way, everyone else is compelled to work in a similar way as you are. And maybe that can be understood. You probably have a lot of pressures to deal with as far as funding goes, and your funders want more and more from you and different things. And we get lots of different grants and nonprofits, and those grants usually require us to do something extra and then only pay for a sliver of someone's time with those grants. I know. I did that for years. I get it. But it doesn't work for us to work in that way. When I was an assistant director, I was so addicted to my work that I would wake up in the middle of the night stressed out and always I would grab my phone and check emails. I would send emails at all hours of the day and night. Sometimes I stayed up all night to work more often than you might think would be reasonable. Like, for instance, right now, I think never is reasonable. So call me a wet blanket. I saw my staff was stressed out and tired and they were missing more and more work and burning out and working very long hours to my chagrin because they started coming in so early. They interrupted my 7am start time and that got in the way of my quote productivity. I finally remembered while I was wondering what was going on with them. My favorite eighties PSA. There's a kid. Let me set the stage for you. There's a eighties room, probably there's wood paneling involved. This kid is sitting in his room listening to music. I feel like he had some giant headphones on, you know, the cool ones, like I'm wearing right now while I'm podcasting. He was listening to music, and his dad walks in. His dad has awesome 80s hair, very curly, as I recall, and probably had a mustache. I might be entirely making this up, but I want to say he was like a poor man's Tom Selleck or something. So I could look this up, but I'm, I'm really too lazy to do that. See, I'm no longer a workaholic, so I'm not going to go the extra mile. i look that up for you. So anyway, this kid's in his room. His dad comes in. His dad is holding a box. He asks the kid, what is this? Pointing to what I could only imagine as a child must have been some very bad drugs. And the kid yells, I learned it from watching you, okay? I learned it from watching you. And they both cry. The point is, the dad was obviously a pothead and the kid figured out and emulated his behavior. It's the same with work addiction. I was a nut job, emailing people at 3 in the morning routinely and then wondering why they didn't take vacations or if they did, emailed me constantly and did work while they were on the beach in Hawaii or whatever. And I thought I was being an awesome, supportive boss by saying, hey, you're on vacation, you shouldn't email me right now. And then immediately, if I were to take a vacation, which was rare, emailing them the whole time I was on vacation because, you know, nothing says do as I say, not as I do, like telling people to take vacations and then never taking one yourself. So here's a helpful checklist for you in case you're not sure whether you or a co-worker or someone you love might be a work addict. It's a set of seven questions developed by some fabulous Norwegian researchers. It's called the Bergen Work Addiction Scale. BWAS, that's not a great acronym, so we'll just call it the Bergen Work Addiction Scale. If you answer yes to four out of seven questions, you should consider intervention. Seriously. Here they are. Answer yes or no for yourself as I go through them. One, you think of how you can free up more time to work. Two, you spend much more time working than initially intended. Three, you work in order to reduce feelings of guilt, anxiety, helplessness, or depression. Four, you've been told by others to cut down on work, but you don't listen. Five, you become stressed if you're prohibited from working. Six, you deprioritize hobbies, leisure activities, or exercise because of your work. Seven, you work so much that it has negatively affected your health. If you answer yes to four or more of those questions, then it is honestly time to take a look at your work habits and ask yourself whether you're addicted to work for real. There was a time when I could have easily said yes to all of the questions above. In fact, my Facebook moments, that little notification that shows you all your Facebook posts from the same date from bygone years, betrays my workaholism endlessly. On Mother's Day in 2013, I applauded my husband for staying home with the kids all day so I could catch up on work in the office. Um, Seriously, I remember that day, too. I was so excited. I went in before the kids got up in the morning, Worked for like seven hours just cleaning my office. I was really into getting things done then, like the official book by David Allen, not just getting things done. And I spent all this time like cleaning out my inbox and whatever it was. Cleaned up my office for the first time probably in years. And then I went home and I don't even remember what happened for the rest of the time. But the working part was like really standing out in my mind. Even to this day, when I read that notification the other day, I was like, oh God, (laughs) this is so depressing. There are regularly recurring posts I see in that. Facebook moments about having a grant to write and staying up all night to get it done because I didn't actually have time to do it during the work day. In fact, from 2009 when I started Facebook until 2014, when I finally came to my senses and started taking care of myself, I'll admit that was only after I had a rough bout with mono, as a 33-year-old woman, which kept me in my bed for three weeks straight, I constantly talked about work, promoted my work, complained about work, oh, and also talked a lot about grad school and going to class, because I was doing that too at the same time, like you do. I recently recall a moment years ago when my boss at the time, who was a woman who looked like a friendly witch and kind of scared me, to be honest, she mentioned in a car ride that one should never make oneself indispensable. I will never forget how confused I was by that statement. I asked her to repeat it. You should never make yourself indispensable, she said. I asked her what on earth she meant. I couldn't fathom it. I was like, wait, what? She had to explain that when you make yourself indispensable, you limit your options and you limit your organization's ability to live without you. Tragically, I took that as a good time to make myself indispensable for the next five years, but eventually when I grew up a little, I could finally see what I was actually doing to myself and my organization. I was working enough to be one and a third people. I understood what she meant. When I realized I needed to leave my organization, it took 18 solid months of what I secretly, not really secretly, because I don't keep secrets. I secretly, fake secretly, called working myself out of a job. I was, I really tried to do that. I tried to limit my time at work. I started to delegate more. I insisted that old duties that I still carried around with me like tin cans on the back of a car that has just married scrawled across the back window, that those duties be given to other people. I didn't want to be indispensable anymore. I wanted to be okay and normal. I wanted to see my kids sometimes. I wanted to not suffer crippling depression, anxiety and stress. I wanted most of all for my organization to thrive and for all the people who work there to feel strong and whole and great about their work without feeling like they had to put in 14 hour days and never take a vacation. I succeeded at only some of that. I know that the people at that organization still work a lot. I know they still don't get the results they want when they work that way and they struggle to understand why. And the chances are, if you're addicted to work and, or if your organization has a culture that condones and celebrates what they like to call work ethic, you think you're doing something good. You think you're helping. The truth is you're not. It's like I said in my blog post last year, you're overwatering a plant, overfeeding a cat, killing the thing you love. You think you're helping, but you're going to crash and burn at some point. And if you're not careful, the whole ship is going to go down with you. So what if you do want to change? What if you're ready to say, step one, admit I have a problem. I work too much. That's great. Congratulations. I applaud your courage to admit it to yourself and your desire to do something different. So I'll give you some ideas about how you can start the process of moving from being a workaholic to being somebody who does good work. Maybe not over-identifying with your work so much and maybe not letting work seep into all aspects of your life or take up all your time. First it's gonna be important for you to connect with your intrinsic value as a person. So hear me out, a lot of our compulsive behaviors stem from our insecurity and our sense of inadequacy. But if you think about it, how do you view other people? Do you think other people are valuable? Do you think they're valuable whether they perform well or produce or not? If they don't do anything important for you, are they still valuable and worthy of love simply because they are human and they exist? I hope you're saying yes to these questions. Well, if you think other people deserve love and respect and are valuable simply because they are, why not you? What if you never worked another day in your life? Try not to hyperventilate here. This is just an exercise, but what if you didn't, what if, would you still matter? Would you still be alive and worthy of love? The answer is yes. Believing this really believing it takes a lot of practice. It takes tons and tons of practice. It seems weird, but it's not easy to accept that you're actually valuable and good simply because you exist, but you are valuable and you are good. And I don't know you from Adam or Eve. You just are. Second, define the kind of life you'd like to have. Let's say you've abandoned all your interests and hobbies in lieu of working. Let's just pretend that's happening. That definitely happened for me. If you have, maybe you can remember something you once loved and start doing it again. Just check it out a little, make a little room for it. For years, years, I was a musician. I was a worship leader at my church from the time I was a kid. But as an adult, addicted to work, I didn't listen to music at all. Ever. I listened to NPR, because I was a nerd, and I was serious about work, and I needed to stay up on current events, and music wasn't interesting to me anymore. In fact, I didn't go to church at all. But one day, I was invited to play music at a church because I needed a pianist, and I went. And then I kept going. And then I actually started to put some cracks in my workaholic shell. The act of making music again and connecting with people spiritually helped me make space in my life for something besides work. And that was all that I needed just at that moment was to let a little light come through those cracks in my workaholic life, just to say, Hey, there's other stuff that you could be doing right now. Other things worth doing other things worth living for three, understand what drives you to work so much. Why are you doing this to yourself and those around you? What drives this need for you? Everything you do is driven by a purpose and a need. What is it for you? For me, I needed to work hard and achieve stuff to feel worthy or okay or have permission to take up space in the world. I was also escaping a marriage I hated and wanted to leave, but I didn't know how. I didn't know any other way to be because I grew up in a working-class family that ingrained the value of hard work into me like you wouldn't believe. Work is good. Overwork is deadly. Know the difference. Four, set parameters for yourself. You know how people who go through Alcoholics Anonymous say they're always alcoholics, even when they don't drink anymore? And how most of them don't drink at all anymore? And lots of them won't go to bars or other places they know drinking will take place? It's really not so different when you're a workaholic. Sometimes that means you need to say, I'm going to leave at 5 every day. If I can't leave at 5, I'll make up for the extra time tomorrow and come in late. Either way, I won't work more than 40 hours this week or 50 or 55, or for those of you who are as nuts as I was, go with 60 and just take yourself a 20 hour cut from your regular work week, whatever it is. Cut back something. That requires a lot of work on your part. I'm not gonna kid you, it's not easy to do because you have set a very high expectation for how much you can produce. And you've done that artificially. It's kind of like cheating, no offense. You get results, but it takes you 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 hours to do it. You're building in false capacity. You're building a false capacity into your organization and you feel like that's okay because it's a nonprofit and maybe you just make a salary and so you should put in all the hours you possibly can just to get these better results and drive these things and blah, blah, blah. That's not helpful, actually. It might help in the short term, but in the long term, you have to be real with yourself and with your boss and with your staff and set up a new expectation. And then you have to be consistent in upholding that new expectation and letting people understand some things are not going to happen the way they used to happen, or we're going to have to make trade-offs. Some things will not get done. Some projects are going to have to be cut. That's just reality. That's plain, simple economics, my friend. Trade-offs are a real thing. And it's okay. It's okay. Okay. This is kind of like making amends too, this step is. You can't change your workaholic ways alone. You need to enlist the help of your coworkers and loved ones. You need them to understand that you've done something that isn't healthy, that isn't good for you or them, and then to have them help you to kind of take up the new space in your life. Make up a new... It's almost like I I always used to think of it as almost like um, you're a cookie cutter and you change the size of your cookie cutter and like everything else around you kind of has to adjust to your new shape. I'm not going to be a workaholic anymore. So everyone else has to learn how to deal with me not being a workaholic anymore. It's a little challenging, but it can be done. You have to be loud and proud about breaking that cycle for yourself and for the sake of your organization. This is about you, but not only about you. And then the last step is to check in on your progress with a friend or accountability partner, better yet, hire a coach who can help you get the best out of yourself without sucking yourself dry. I recommend that you pick a coach who gets workaholism recovery. Seriously. You need help to do this. It's a community issue. It's a worldwide problem. It's not necessarily something you can just roll out of bed one day and be like, I'm not going to be a workaholic anymore. It's really a process. So be kind to yourself and keep your eye on where you really want to go with it. Who do you want to be in the world? What do you want to actually accomplish in your life? What's important to you? Who are the people that are important to you? What do you want to say when you retire? What do you want to say before you retire? Who are you besides you know the name of your position. So here are the things that I really want to just drill down in and what I want you to know about workaholism in nonprofits. One, it makes you sick. Two, it makes your organization sick. And three, it breaks you and your mission down instead of building it up. And the ways that you can break that you can resolve that issue in yourself or support others who are going through it is to go through that five-step process that I just mentioned. I don't want you to work too hard. That's why there's not 12 steps. So before you start, admit you have a problem, you want to change, and then proceed with steps one through five, which just to recap are one, connect with your intrinsic value. You're not what you do. You're more than that. Find out how much more and appreciate yourself for it. Two, define the kind of life you'd like to have. And that can include reconnecting with old interests or spiritual pursuits or whatever takes you outside of work. Three, understand what drives you to work so much. You need to know your reasons for wanting to work all the time. And you need to know what those are so you can overcome them. And then four, set parameters for yourself. Understand what you want to do differently. Be clear so you can see whether you're living up to your new commitments to yourself. And five, enlist help for this journey of change. Find a colleague who won't enable you or sneak you back into overworking. We all know who those people are. I actually have a friend like that who I used to work with all the time. In fact, we both started at 7 a.m. and we would both do this to each other. So don't find somebody who will enable you, but pick somebody who's going to help you actually achieve this goal or hire a coach who understands your whole life goals, including your professional goals, so that you can have somebody who will help you be accountable to yourself to make those changes. So that's workaholism in nonprofits. Let's keep the conversation going. You can do that at the blog post on my LinkedIn post, post, which is Addicted to Do-Gooding, or on the No-Nonsense Nonprofit website. Or you can join the Lean Nonprofit Geniuses Facebook group and participate there. If you're a workaholic, have no fear, you can change. I'm living proof, and I'm much, much, much happier and healthier than I was when work was my whole gig. Thanks for listening to No Nonsense Nonprofit, brought to you by Lean Nonprofit, with your host, Sarai Johnson. Learn more at LeanNonprofit.com and NoNonsenseNonprofit.com and join the conversation in the private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash nonprofit. See you there.